Well, again, good morning, and if you're visiting with us, if you're a guest, we are um, really glad that you're here uh, today. We are going through a sermon series on the book of Acts, and we're doing that in part uh, because uh, this story of the early church that we find in Acts is such a powerful and compelling picture, I think, of what was going on um, in those earliest moments at the very birth of the church in the world. And so we're looking at it for that reason, but we're also looking at it because it is such an example, right, of this vibrant, uh, growing, spirit-filled, Christ-centered church that's on mission in the world. And so we want to look and see what is it that, that God was doing in and through the church then, because our desire is that he would continue to do that in and through the church, even among us at Apostles Houston. And so that's our hope, that God would use Acts in some way to help us understand who we are as the church here in Houston. And so with that goal in mind, I want to jump right into uh, Acts. If you want to open your Bible or on a Bible app to Acts chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And or we're just going to look at Acts chapter 6 this morning and what we might learn from it about what it means for us to be the church and to be on mission. In Acts chapter 6, uh, we're told right at the beginning, verse 1, it says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. So right off the bat, we are reminded that in this moment in the life of the church, the church is growing. It's gone from hundreds uh, to thousands, right? And this growing group is learning how to follow Jesus. This community has gone from just a few hundred and now growing day by day. It says, adding to their number, and this incredible new community that's taking shape is experiencing uh, what Acts describes as, as one heart and one mind. There's this incredible, powerful unity to what's happening among them. They're devoted to Christ and to one another, we're told. They're devoted to prayer and to worship, to the word, and to practicing this way of Jesus together. And God was doing miracles and signs, and this incredible experience was kind of unfolding for thousands and thousands and growing day by day. It was incredible. Um, but we also discovered last week, as we looked at the last two chapters, um, that circumstances in this moment were far from perfect. Right? If you remember last week, we, we looked uh, in chapter 4 and then chapter 5 and discovered that the church was facing persecution uh, from the outside and deception um, from within. And so this week, um, even as the church is expanding, it faces another threat. And so I want us to look at this threat that's coming against the church in these early moments in the life of its mission. Um, and the threat really is this. It's the threat of division. The threat of division. Acts 6 goes on to say in verse 1, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, so first, who are the Hellenists and the Hebrews? Who are these two groups um, that we're introduced to here? And then why is it that they're not getting along? Quick history. So at this point, if you'll remember, in kind of the story of the church, we're told in Acts 1-8 that there's, there's a stage to it, a one, two, three kind of stage to the expansion of the church. You remember in Acts 1-8, it says that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And right now, we're in stage one. Everything that's happened up to this point that we've read about in Acts has happened within the context of Jerusalem. And it's happening within the community of the Jews that live there. 
In other words, the only people who are part of the church right now are Jewish. And within this community, there's actually a division that's emerging between two different groups of Jewish people. One called the Hellenists and one called the Hebrews. Now, in this time, uh, for the Jews, there was um, uh, basically uh, the expansion of Greek culture had covered almost the entire known world. So Greek language and culture have this global influence. So you might think about it the same way that American culture might affect um, someone who lives in Africa or Asia or somewhere else in Europe. That language of English is spoken maybe as a secondary language, but also cultural practices are kind of getting picked up and carried out through native cultures. And so what you've got is you've got some Jews who are embracing this influence more than others. They speak Greek, for example. They've taken up Greek practices, and they're called the Hellenists. And then you've got this other group called the Hebrews, and they're basically doing the opposite, right? They're trying to avoid the Greek influence in their life, to preserve something more of their Jewish tradition in Jerusalem. And so you've got these two groups. So with that kind of in mind, you can understand how some divisions within the church might begin to emerge. From the start, in other words, there were these natural barriers that existed within the church between uh, groups, things like language and tradition. And as it happens, this flashpoint that we encounter here, it emerges around the daily distribution of food, is what we're told. So those uh, who had gathered, who were serving each other, sharing possessions, eating meals together, in that context... There's a problem with the daily distribution of food to those in need, specifically to the widows within the Greek, the Hellenist community of Jews. And the problem is that the Greek-speaking widows are getting left out. That's the problem. And so what do you do in your church when there's a problem? What do you do? You call the pastor, right? You call the pastor, or you greet your leadership on the phone, and you say, hey, there's a problem. I want to make sure that you... Now, I never get those calls here. There's never any problems at Apostles, right? No one ever. But you could do that. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. There's something being modeled here I think is really good, that when we encounter problems within the church, this is our community. But there's a path to figure out, okay, how do we deal with issues within our community in a healthy way? And you reach out to those who are in leadership within your community. So I just want to encourage you. This is just a little side. If, if there's something going on and you feel like, man, the pastor needs to know this, please let me know. Or reach out to your leadership council. That's part of what they do. They are serving our community in that way. And so you see that developing here. So that kind of makes sense to us. What happens here is that this threat of division begins to emerge. And so they reach out to their leadership. They reach out to the apostles for help. And what emerges here is a very serious threat of, of division within the church. And it's really only the beginning. Because if you read through the New Testament, if you look at some of the letters of Paul, for example, in the Corinthian church, what you find is they were plagued by divisions, jealousy, and conflict. Paul says, agree in 1 Corinthians. He said, I urge you to agree that there might not be any divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind. And Jesus himself knew that this was going to be a problem in the church. There was going to be division. He prayed to the Father in John 17, 11. He said to the disciples, keep them in your name. He prayed this over them. He said, Father, those who you've given to me, that they might be one, even as we are one. And then again in verse 21, Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that 
the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, for Jesus and Paul, division in the church was so critical to address because it threatened to undermine the very mission of the church. The unity of the church is part of the witness of the church in the world, in other words. That our witness as a community gathered around Jesus, faith in him, that stands as a powerful part of our witness to the world. In other words, unity is essential for the witness of the church. And yet, we all know this, sadly, through history, the church is one of the most fractured and divided groups in the world. So Jesus knew this was coming. The Apostle Paul saw these things coming. The Apostles dealt with it from the very beginning, the threat of division. And division can be caused by almost anything, right? I mean, everything from theological differences to choices of light fixtures have caused churches to divide, to split, to have huge conflict. And it has devastating impacts on the witness of the church and its danger It's a danger that faces us too at Apostles. I'm not talking about anything specific within our community. But I think Jesus' prayer in John 17 was for his followers and it's for us as his followers. It was a prayer that we might know unity because we will face the threat of division. Part of our vision here at Apostles is uh, that we do believe God has called us as family. We talked about that uh, this morning and saw a picture of that uh, with baptism. That God's called us to live into this community and that we are, um, so that's so important to us. We hold that up, community as family, because we take seriously God's declaration that in Christ we have been adopted and now live together as children of our Heavenly Father. Which means we are brothers and sisters. We are a family in this community. There's no us and them in Christ. There is only we. And we have articulated that and we hold to that because it's so important because the inertia of this fallen world in which we live is to move us towards an us and them mentality. It's constantly inviting us. Our our propensity is to seek out people who look like us and dress like us and talk like us and live like us, people who vote like we do, who think about the world the way that we do. And so our propensity, the pressure in the world is for us to be us and them. And that is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is diversity in unity around Christ. And that is our witness to the world. You know, what's interesting is part of our identity as Anglicans is that we are part of a global church. Now, if Anglicanism is new to you, it might surprise you to know that there are almost 100 million people around the earth who identify themselves as part of this tradition, this Christian tradition of Anglicanism. It might surprise you further to know that the average Anglican in the world isn't white or Western or wealthy. That the average Anglican in the world is dark-skinned, lives in the global south, and probably makes less than $1,000 a year. That's the community, the broader community, the communion that we are a part of here at Apostles. And I just hold that up because it's a significant and powerful picture, and it's a part of who we are. And it's not diversity for diversity's sake, but it's part of our call and our witness 
to be a faithful reflection of the people God has called us to live among and serve globally and locally. That we as followers of Christ should desire that what this community looks like reflects what our broader community looks like because Jesus is for all and his church is for all. And so the threat of division is a real threat against this image of the church, of this vision for the church, even within this room. We have different passions. We have different priorities within this room. We have different visions for what the church ought to look like, what the church ought to be doing. We come from different backgrounds. We represent different socioeconomic and political perspectives. And we ought not to be naive about the enemy's ability to take those and leverage them so that we might become divided within this community. That the threat of division is very, very real for us. And so the question I think that that is begged by what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is, how do we avoid it? How do we avoid becoming a community that years from now is struggling with deep division, for example? By God's grace, we're not right now. But again, we ought not to be naive about the fact that we face an enemy that seeks to divide us. So how can we avoid it? And I think what we witness here in Acts chapter 6 is really helpful because it offers us a solution. What I would call the solution of service. The way we combat, the way we avoid um, this danger of division is through the solution of service. It's an attitude of humble service, in other words, that undermines the power of division in a community. Listen to what the apostles do when they face this problem. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint this, to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles' solution to division was service, right? They assigned seven men to serve tables. Now, why this approach? Why this solution to the division? They could have gone a lot of different ways in responding to what was happening, but they chose to go this way. Well, in some ways, it's just a practical solution, right? There's more need than there is leadership, and so they raise up new leaders and assign them to help with this problem. But I think there's more to it than that, and I think Luke clues us in. The author of Acts clues us into this because he wants us to understand, I think, some key aspects of what the apostles are doing and why they're doing it this way. And so I want to point to two. And the first one is, in the solution of service, there is a focus on mission. There's a focus on mission. One of the key ways to combat division in the church is to focus on the mission. Notice the apostle said in verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God, is what they said. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his followers, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. See, they were to go out. That was their commission. They were to go out on mission with God. They were to go out and boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus, of the risen Jesus. And we see that unfolding in Acts. If you've been reading through Acts, you're seeing this Unfold In Acts chapter 2, chapter two, the Pentecost story, when the Spirit falls on the followers of Jesus, what happens? Do you remember? It falls on them. There's signs and wonders, but they boldly proclaim, we're told, the mighty works of God. 
As you go on in Acts, we encounter in Acts 3 and 5, the apostles performing these miracles and these signs. And what are they doing over and over? Several times we're told they boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the crowds and the authorities. See, central to the mission is this proclamation, proclaiming the good news. Now, does that mean that caring for the practical needs of the church is not important, that it doesn't matter? No, that's not what's happening here. In fact, it matters so much the apostles assign a special team of people to the task. But what is clear is that the priority is absolutely clear, that serving the needs of the church cannot come at the cost of preaching the good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. The danger of division within the church is that it distracts from the mission of the church. It can cause us to focus, in other words, on the wrong things, right? As a friend of mine um, says, the church is not like a cruise ship. Sometimes we act like the church is this cruise ship where we, we get to kind of cruise around all together and doing all these different activities with no particular destination. And he says the church is not like that. The church, he says, is more like a battleship with a mission, a destination, a purpose, where everyone on board has a duty. There's a lot of activity, but that activity is all related to the mission, right? The mission is always in focus. And we have an enemy that wants to distract us from our mission, which is to share with the world there is a God who made them and knows them and loves them. And that he's demonstrated that in the person of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, this division, right? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The focus, the mission, we have to hold to the focus of the mission and the person of Jesus. You know, I, I love doing premarital counseling. I love sitting down with couples and talking about this new season of life that they're about to enter into. And one of the things that we always talk with them about is uh, how to foster intimacy within their marriage. And what I always encourage couples to remember is that intimacy in your marriage is a direct reflection of your intimacy with the Lord. That the most important thing that you can do for the strength and the health of your marriage is your relationship with Jesus. It's to be with him to spend time with him, to grow in your affection for him and your intimacy with him. It's to keep Jesus as the focus of your life. And I think there's a similar truth when it comes to our community. That if we want to maintain the unity, the the bond that we share in Christ, we must maintain our commitment to Christ. We must be with Jesus in prayer. We must be with Jesus through his word. We must love him and remain committed to him if we have any hope of loving one another and loving the world. And so that means no matter how we are serving in the church, whether you're serving as a, a greeter or you're helping out as a parking lot attendant or if you're teaching kids or you're a leadership council member, no matter what you're doing, how you're serving, you are serving with the mission of Christ in mind. You're serving in a way through your commitment to Christ above all. And that, that fosters genuine unity and community among us. And so to avoid division, we must first focus on the mission, on Christ. And then the second thing that I want to point out here is that to avoid division, we have to follow the model. We have to follow the model of Christ. 
You know, how did the apostles kind of come to this solution? How did they come to this new problem and come up with a creative solution that would help solve the problem? And I think it's because they followed the model of Jesus. I think they looked back and they thought about their time with Christ and they thought about how he led them and how he ministered to them. And they came up with a creative solution that was based on the model of Jesus. So consider Philippians 2, for example, which is one of the earliest hymns we have that talks about Jesus. And it says this. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was a servant. Jesus humbled himself. And this image of Jesus as this suffering servant who suffers on our behalf can be traced all the way back into the Old Testament. And in Acts, Jesus is repeatedly referred to as a servant, servant of the Most High, which is why Jesus' early followers took that identity on themselves, this identity of servant. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says this. It says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all of my people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, men and women, it says. Acts 4.29, they pray and they ask God, God, will you enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness? And here in Acts chapter 6, it's interesting, the Greek word um, for service, diakoneo, is the verb. And it's used twice. It's used once in verse 2 in reference to serving at the tables. And then it's also used again in verse 4 in reference to serving or ministering with the word. It's the same word, same root word in both cases. And it's this form of Greek that we get the, the word um, deacon from. Diakoneo is where we get the word deacon from. And it simply means to serve, right, or, or to minister to others. And so again and again, this idea of service, of humble service, comes up. The idea that all followers of Jesus are servants was critical to the apostles' understanding of leadership in the church. And so that's why they require that these new leaders have good reputations, that they be full of the Spirit, that they be full of wisdom, full of grace, as we hear about Stephen later, full of power. It's because they weren't looking for volunteers who would just be willing to serve because they had some experience waiting tables. They weren't looking for people just to serve because they had available time on their hands. They were looking for people who looked and lived like Jesus, who were servants, who were humble. See, there's an urgent need within the church. We've talked about this for, for an infusion of God's power in our lives. So often our experience of church lacks power. I've experienced that. I'm sure you've experienced that. And so we long for more of God's prayer. We're pr power, praying for God's power in our lives, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us and among us and through us. And we should pray. Jesus longs to give us this gift, but we also have to be very careful, I think, when we talk about power. The power of God is not like the power of the world. It is power rooted in his identity not ours, in his will, not ours. Power planted in this 
soil of ourself, if that's the route we take, it can become incredibly dangerous and very destructive. David Brooks, um, New York Times columnist, he said this. He said, we live in the culture of the big me. The meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of your life. Your parents and your teachers are always telling you just how wonderful you are. In other words, we live in a culture that is corrupted by pride, right? We live in this culture where uh, the emphasis is on me, the big me, Brooks calls it. And the, the danger is that we can take this understanding of power as it's presented to us in Acts, and we can take it and it can be corrupted by our pride. But power in the kingdom of God goes hand in hand with humility. That's what we see here in Acts 6. Power in the church should always come from and return attention to Jesus, not to ourselves. In the church, power ought to smell like humility, not like pride, not like celebrity. It's a power that's exemplified beautifully in Stephen here in chapter 6. One of those chosen to serve at the tables. And this so jumped out at me this week as I was reading over this. It's a passage that's familiar to me. Maybe it is to you. But it really stood out to me this week that this was a man who had been asked to serve at tables. And the next thing we're told about him is that he was full of God's grace and power and that he's performing great wonders and signs among the people. Right? Stephen was serving tables and he was full of grace and power, performing wondrous signs among the people. He was the parking lot attendant. Right? He's the equivalent of someone who's behind the scenes that you never even see with a microphone or in a spotlight. And yet somehow God is using him powerfully and mightily to minister to people just as he is and just as he serves. It's this incredibly powerful picture of what humility and power look like together in a person's life. He was just a guy serving tables. But he was full of the power of God, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace. He was humble. Our own uh, Jack Wisdom has written a great book that I highly recommend to you. It's called Get Low. And in it he says, the trouble is that we are called to live with humility in a world that's been vandalized by pride. Love that image, a world vandalized by pride, because that's what it feels like so often. We live in a world vandalized by pride. We, we live in a world that desperately needs a standing testimony, a witness of what power and humility look like together. And that's why humility can be so powerful, because it stands in such stark contrast to the power and the leadership that usually are, at function, are functioning in our world. It's not the way of the world. It's the way of Jesus. And it stands out when you have power and humility side by side in the person's life. So I, just as I'm ending, I want to give you a few examples of what this looks like, I think, in the church. Uh, a friend of mine moved to England uh, to intern under a famous pastor uh, in Oxford. And this pastor is known for raising up incredible leaders in the church. Um, just raising up men and women, equipping them, and then kind of sending them out to be leaders around 
the world, effective teachers and preachers and pastors. And so my friend was really excited, and I was really excited to hear what his experience was going to be like. And so when he got there, I was surprised to find out that the thing that he was doing was not teaching a class, was not preaching on Sundays, was not giving the rain, giving, he wasn't giving the reins of some ministry in the church. What he was doing was he was cleaning bathrooms. This pastor had interns come in and set up chairs and take down chairs. That's what they did. That's the first thing they did. Before they did anything else, they had to pick up trash around the campus. That's what the training, what the development looked like because I think this pastor understood that these men and women need to be cultivated as servant leaders, not celebrity leaders. It's simple, but, you know, cleaning bathrooms and setting up chairs and picking up the trash, you know, it, it shapes you. It changes you. It gives you perspective on yourself and on others and on God. I also heard a, a story of a man uh, named Fred uh, who had been a successful attorney in Corpus Christi. He came to faith in Jesus, and he uh, felt led to quit his job. And so he quit his job, and he started to serve the church. And he's known um, because he has a really distinctive look. He apparently has this huge beard, and he kind of wanders around um, uh, the campus and the neighborhood. You might think he's homeless, but he's not. He has a home. He's got money that he lives off of, apparently, from being a successful attorney. But he never asks for anything. In fact, what he does is he walks around, and he picks up trash, that's what he's known for. He walks around and he picks up trash. And at some point, the Lord called him to move to Russia. And so apparently he did this. He moved to Russia. And what he did was the same thing he'd been doing here at his church here. He just started walking around and picking up trash. And the Lord used that as a testimony to his humility. And people were curious. And they asked him. And he got to share Jesus. And people came to faith because this guy was willing to just do something as simple as pick up trash. He saw himself as a servant. And then one other example I, I thought of um, has to do with uh, a guy who was here last week. Some of you got to meet Benjamin Atkinson. Uh, and uh, it was a great day. We gathered here and we prayed together and we prayed with our kids. And he did like a little workshop teaching our children to pray. And it was really powerful. But he, he shared a story um, during his weekend here um, about a, an opportunity that he had uh, to pray with a, a famous politician. And he and his team uh, got invited to come and pray for this politician. And he had some pretty strong disagreements, apparently, with this person's uh, views. And so he just confessed that he had really been struggling about how is he going to pray for this man of whom he had such strong disagreements with. But the Lord had called him to pray, and so he felt called to go and pray. And so as he was going uh, to pray with this man, he felt very convicted. He felt the Lord spoke to him and said, you don't love this man. You're going to pray for this man. You're responding to my, my leading to pray for him, but you don't love him. You don't love him like I do. In fact, you just want to be right. You don't want to love him. And as he shared um, this, he said, you know, just before he was supposed to go in and pray, uh, he had to go to the bathroom. So he went into the bathroom. And as he was in the bathroom, um, something went terribly wrong with the plumbing. And he's standing there, and literally sewage is rising up through the floor and spraying all over him. And he gets covered in sewage. And he has to go in and pray with this famous politician. 
And so he's like trying to wipe it off. And he, and he, he literally, he said, he heard the Lord as he's wiping off the sewage from his pants and trying to clean up. Say to him, filthy rags. Your self-righteousness is like filthy rags before me. And he felt so humbled in that moment that God would call him and put him in a position to pray with a man. And he said, love this man. That's what it means to serve me. It means to see yourself rightly as one who desperately needs the grace of God in your life so that you can then love and serve others and point them to the God who has made you clean. This is a powerful picture, I think. That's why I wanted to share it with you of, of what we're actually like. You know, humility is having right perspective. It's that before the Lord, we are so undeserving. We are so broken. We are so in need. And yet God loves us. And he invites us to serve him and to be a part of his mission. But he doesn't call us to do it with our own power. It's by his power, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the mark of a person filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is humility. It's humility. God wants to use us as a church, as vessels. And he wants to use us to change lives, to change our lives. But he can only do it through those who have a heart of Christ, like Christ, a heart that is humbled before him. The threat of division is powerful, but the good news is that God is more powerful. God is more powerful, and when we keep our focus on the mission of Christ, when we follow in the steps of Christ, modeling his life as a servant, then we become people not marked by pride and division, but by humility and by love. We will witness God's power in our lives, and in this church, and we will be witnesses for God in this city and in our world. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we thank you that you sent your son to come and live among us and to take on human flesh. And Lord, you did that. You set aside heaven and all the glory that was yours, you set all that aside and you humbled yourself and you did that even to the point of death on the cross. And for that, we thank you. Lord, because it's rescued us, it's redeemed us from ourself and from our sin. But Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks too that you invite us into this way of life with you. You pour out the power of your Holy Spirit on us and Lord, we long for that. Lord, fill us with the power of your Spirit that we might be humble. Lord, that we might be people who are confident not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And Lord, that we might see great signs, that we might see healing, that we might see your spirit move in amazing ways. And we would always know and always give testimony that it was you. That it was you, Lord. And we thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.